0: Laura Braden, do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Braden. Good morning. Thank you for being here to give your testimony. My pleasure. Now, I know that you've prepared a detailed slideshow, and you're going to start with your qualifications, training, and experience. So I'm going to let you get right into the slideshow. I'm going to try not to interrupt, and uh, if I do from time to time, it will probably just be to explain in simpler terms because I, I know you have a complicated slideshow. So it may be just to explain in simpler terms what you're um, talking about or to have you do so. So I'm going to go ahead
1: and let you take the floor. Fantastic. And yeah. yeah. All right, thank well, thank you. Um, and, it's, again, it's a pleasure for me to be here today. Um, Yes. Yeah, so my name is, is Dr. Laura Marie Braden. I have a doctorate in molecular biology with a focus in um, molecular biology, cell biology, um, and transcriptomics, uh, genomics, functional immunology, proteomics, et cetera. Um, so my uh, education and experience started uh, with a degree in cellular molecular biology. Um, I then did another one in neuroscience because I just couldn't get enough of school, um, and that was followed by a doctorate, as I mentioned, at the University of Victoria, BC, which is my home province. Um, in my doctorate, um, I specialized in molecular immunology uh, with a focus on host-parasite interactions, really understanding the interface between host and pathogens, um, and these pathogens included virus, bacteria, and parasites. Um, and I used uh, techniques uh, in molecular biology to get a better sense of these interactions. And these techniques included transcriptomics, so learning how RNA expression impacts this, genomics, so the genes, uh, functional immunology, so really getting a sense of how cells in the immune system interact with hosts and parasites, um, and histopathology, micros- microscopy, et cetera. Um, I was then recruited to come to PEI, the East Coast uh, and that is my, my home province now. Uh, I'm a proud Islander. Um, and I did my first postdoctoral fellowship in pathology and microbiology. Um, I did another one, again, in immunology. Um, again, really focusing on understanding how the host and the parasite or the pathogen interact. Um, I then got my big girl job, (laughs) you say that after you do your Um, postdoc, with a private biotech firm. But I maintained a tight connection with the academic world uh, because teaching is a passion of mine. Communicating science is a passion of mine. Um, And I had an adjunct, there's a spelling mistake there, I apologize, an adjunct professorship in the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine and Pathology and Microbiology. So getting into what my, my career was uh, up until 2021 is um, I was the senior research scientist and program lead um, in molecular biology and biotechnology. I was in charge of development of novel biotechnology solutions, uh, genomics, transcriptomics, again, histopathology, functional immunology. And a really important piece of this, which is what I, I was, I'm going to focus on a li- little bit later in my talk, is that I have an extensive experience in the GLP environment, and what that means is good laboratory practices, which is what regulatory compliance is all about. So I know what it takes to go through a proper, rigorous regulatory compliance uh, approval process with the FDA and the Health Canada. Um, and so my fami- I have familiarity with regulatory compliance processes, the approval process of new products, and most importantly, what quality control and quality assurance means. Wow. Okay. Great.
0: So we're in for a science lesson today. Yes.
1: (laughs) Okay. So why, um, number one, I already mentioned, it's an extreme pleasure to be here. Um, You know, as we got through the beginning of the COVID crisis, um, from the very beginning, uh, there were red flags for me. And as someone um, with the understanding and education of number one, Uh, how to read science. Science is hard to read. Scientific papers are hard to read. It's very exhaustive. Um, But with our training, we learn how to do so. I know how to interpret data. I know how to read data. Um, And so things were popping up that didn't sit quite right. So it was sort of a professional obligation of mine and those in my profession, I feel, to question the quote-unquote science, Um, because that's what scientists do. We never stop questioning until 2020. Um, the, I'm going to highlight a few things here in the slide and then move on. There's a lot to talk about. With the brevity, in the interest of time, I would like to focus on a few things. Um, the first ones I've highlighted here, so number one, at the very beginning, there were genomic sequences that were published uh, on COVID that contained some very interesting inconsistencies uh, with the whole concept of uh, natural origin. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about Um, masking and and the inconsistencies in the scientific data to support indiscriminate masking of healthy people, Um, uh, asymptomatic spread, and also the use of PCR. I use PCR every day of my life in my career. I troubleshot PCR. I was talking with the technical support teams of the major uh, biotech firms who were were supporting PCR in my lab. I know how to use PCR, Um, and I have some things to say about that. Um, I'm not going to go too much into it, but there there was also this demonization of early early treatment strategies to control the virus. Never before have we never treated the virus. You always treat the sick people, you don't send them home. Um, And there was this demonization of early treatment strategies and with safe generic drugs that was very upsetting um, and inconsistent with science. And finally, I want to point out the last piece here. Um, This whole concept of this novel technology that, in my opinion, which was my initial and very adamant concern, um, that there was a lack of quality assurance and quality control to ensure there was no contamination in these products. Um, And I I fail to this day to see rigorous testing to demonstrably justify its widespread use. So I'll move on. The first thing that I saw was early sequence data in 2020 that indicated there were novel genetic inserts um, in the sequence. And what that means is we were told from the very beginning that this was a natural-born virus that that was a zoonotic, so it transferred from a bat to a human. Um, They published the sequence in January of 2020, and then a paper came out, a preprint. So because there's so much data, we have to get the data out as fast as possible, preprints are uh, when the authors want to get the information into the realm without going through the exhaustive process of peer review, which can take many months. So a preprint, you have to keep in mind, isn't, hasn't gone through the rigorous testing a peer review process, but it's open science. They want comments. They want to get a discussion going, which I will emphasize is the tenet of science, is open discussion and discourse. So they want to get this done. Okay, there was an early sequ- sequence uh, analysis indicating there was these interesting novel genetic inserts and this caught my attention um, because these inserts showed significant similarity to HIV-1 sequences that were never present before in coronavirus. Um, And that was very interesting to me as a scientist and I wanted to talk about it and I, I was of course silenced from my peers saying this was ridiculous. These sequences I'll show here. This is a a 3D generation um, using bioinformatics uh, tools that you can put in a sequence of a protein, and you get a rendition of what this protein looks like. So this was the spike protein from this paper. This is the paper from Pradhan et al. Uncanny similarity of unique inserts in the in the COVID-19 spike protein to HIV-1 GP120 and Gag, and that's just a lot of talk saying we found similarities in COVID. HIV. That's interesting. Let's talk about it. The really important piece of this, of course, is that these sites that they found are the sites I've highlighted here in red that are the binding sites. These are the binding sites of the protein, meaning those are the pieces of the protein that would interact with human cells. So if those are interesting or different and unexpected, let's talk about it. That might be something to talk about, right? Interestingly enough, those particular proteins that are similar in HIV-1 are GP120 inserts that facilitate or allow interaction with CD4-plus T cells. So this was indicating that SARS, COVID-2, could interact with not just the ACE2 receptors, which we've all heard about, but also T cells. And this is a paper talking about it. Okay, so in, in addition, they also found the furin cleavage site, and I've highlighted those here in green. These are the furin cleavage sites. They, again, were not present in any other coronaviruses, so this was an interesting finding. And um, these also facilitate nuclear transport, and we're going to get into that in a, little bit, a little bit later, but they were different. And they also showed that these particular uh, furin cleavage sites were key to pathogenesis. This is what made uh, COVID-19 pathological to humans. So instead of discussing this and engaging in discourse, which is typical of science, this paper was withdrawn over a weekend. And it sort of disappeared into the ether, and we never saw it again. Um, and this was very concerning to me because this contradicts the typical process for discourse after publication. If there's a paper that's published and there's other authors that have an issue with that, generally what happens is that there's interactions, there's comments, there's letters to the editor, etc. But instead of any of that, it was just mysteriously withdrawn. Okay.
0: And so if I understand what you're saying, Dr. Braden there's early evidence that the signatures on the virus were man-made or synthetic. That's correct. There was evidence for this, yes. And that did not support the theory that it came from bat to human.
1: No. And um, that evidence continues to accrue. Uh, Many papers in the last couple of years have shown that, including a paper by a a, a group of authors that have shown other endonuclease signatures that are recombinant in nature. Um, And so let's talk about that. And also there's um, evidence coming out, of course, in the U.S. about this whole concept of uh, lab-made origin. So instead of discussing these potentials in 2020 as a group uh, of peers, um, people who brought that up were censored, um, they were taken down off social media sites, and of course the papers were withdrawn, which is completely antithetical to science. I'll move on. So the other thing, the next thing that really bugged me was how they figured we would stop a mosquito with a chain-link fence. And that's tongue-in-cheek, of course. Um, but it was the indiscriminate masking of healthy people that never made sense, and it didn't make sense to a lot of people. But those of us who worked in level 3 biolabs, lab, bio worked with viruses, know how these things work. It didn't make sense even more. Yet we saw our colleagues go along with this narrative, which was especially concerning. Um, so we've heard about the masking and and how it doesn't make sense in in a number of ways. It wasn't supported by science. Public health uh, said you need to follow the experts and trust the science, and masking is the best way to stop the spread. Um, If you're working with virus, you need to have negative pressure rooms, you need to have flow hoods, you need to have full body suits, uh, proper respirators, not a bedazzled cloth mask. That does not work. Um, And and, and even then, um, you know, we know from previous uh, scientific research, this doesn't stop the flu, which is droplets. How could they ina- imagine that masking would stop aerosol- aerosols, which is COVID? So it didn't make sense. Um, and But then it didn't make sense intuitively. And then large randomized control st- studies were then published, one of them being the Denmark or the the famous Dan mask study and then the Bangladesh study. They showed no impact on risk reduction. This is the one um, from from Denmark. And then we finally have uh, over the last couple years, despite the evidence that they don't stop spread, um, the meta-analysis by the Cochrane collaboration um, showing no impact. Um, And I'll quote from the, the lead author, the pooled results of the studies did not show a clear reduction in respiratory viral infection with the use of medical or surgical masks. Um, So I'll move on from that.
0: Just to summarize, it sounds as though the medical professionals who were um, indicating we needed to wear masks were ignoring this
1: science. They were. So the next point, moving the goalposts as they did constantly, this one, that there's sick perfectly healthy people. And what I mean by that is asymptomatic people were told that they were sick because they tested positive using a PCR test. And it is my professional opinion that this was used by the media and health bureaucrats to perpetuate the fear uh, of in people. Public health, again, did not support this assumption with evidence of any kind. It was never proven that asymptomatic shedding resulted in infectious uh, spread. Um, And even the the WHO, the uh, World Health Organization, admitted it was rare. One of the biggest studies to sort of conclude that asymptomatic spread wasn't a thing um, was a Chinese study, this was published in Nature, that out of the 10 million PCR tests they conducted in Wuhan, 300 of those, 10 million, were asymptomatic. And out of those 300, 190 people already contained antibodies. So they had already been infected. And out of the 300, none, not one person produced a live virus in the lab setting. Demonstrating high cycling of PCR was generating false positives.
0: Okay, so the false positives were used to support the asymptomatic spread um, narrative.
1: Correct. And I'll go through that a little bit more detail here. I will be clear, PCR detects nucleic acid, it does not detect disease. Never before in my training have we used PCR to show that an animal was sick. PCR is a good diagnostic tool that is always followed up with a confirmatory test of some kind. In a virus setting, if you test an animal and it is positive for PCR, and I will also mention here within the realms and the linearity of the test itself, which is an important part, you always confirm with either a uh, bacterial culture or a virus culture of some kind. That was not done in this case. Diagnostic tests need to be di- uh, interpreted in the context of the patient. So, whether or not this person already had COVID, if there was a presence presence of antibodies already uh, in their blood, meaning they've already you know went through the infection and they they just have residual DNA because again PCR tests for nucleic acid. Do they have symptoms? Are they sick? It has been shown conclusively over and over again that high cycles over 30 is detecting such low levels of viral RNA, it does not indicate infectivity. And that's what they showed with the China study from the slide before. Viral shedding occurs after recovery. DNA is sometimes sequestered, and RNA is sometimes sequestered by our immune system cells weeks after the virus is gone. Is that what is being detected here? we don't know because they never conducted culture based methods to confirm the person actually had infectious viral particles they use pcr cycled at ridiculously high levels and when i mean what i mean by that is the test is only designed to confirm the presence of nucleic acid within a certain range and that range really shouldn't be considered past 30 35 cycles yet across canada provinces were cycling routinely 40 45 cycles it that is inconsistent with the di- with the science based on the test and so that's where the false positives come Correct. from these are healthy people that may have had the
0: virus at one point this the signature if you will is still in their system and so because they're cycling it so high it's 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 magnifying revealing that that signature precisely yep.
1: And I've mentioned this point previously, PCR detection of viruses is helpful, but it does not detect infectious virus. And this has been shown exhaustively in the literature with many other virus that viral RNA can be detected long after the disappearance of the actual infectious virus. Um, and, and actually in, in Portugal, um, there was uh, a Lisbon Court of Appeal that concluded the PCR test is unable to determine beyond reasonable doubt that a positive result corresponds in fact to the infection of a person by the virus and that's very important. This precedent was being set across the world yet Can- Canada was not following the contemporary science. And the next slide is an example of a FOIP request kindly, gen- uh, uh, kindly given to me by Dr. Jessica Rose um, from the Newfoundland Public Health showing the threshold is 45 cycles and that, to me, in my professional opinion, is abhorrent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this, it's hard to find every single province across Canada but I know that PEI was cycling to 40 I know that Ontario was cycling to 40 uh, so we can assume the rest of provinces followed the same trend
0: and that would not be the standard to be cycling no. at that level no
1: all right So those are the pieces that I wanted to talk about in terms of the mandates. Now I want to get into the quality control and quality assurance, or lack thereof, in my opinion. For an experimental product, we would expect rigorous quality control and assurance that the product we are receiving is consistent, it is transparent, we know what is in it. The necessary steps to approve this gene therapy, which is what it is, were rushed, incomplete, or simply ignored. The precautionary principle was thrown to the wayside. For example, there was no genotoxicity studies conducted because they felt it wasn't needed. And I am I'm assuming that by the end of my presentation, you will disagree with that statement. The biodistribution studies that had to be FOIPed because they didn't want us to know where it went were extremely underpowered and lacked relevance. There was no quality assurance from sponsors, and when I say sponsors, in the regulatory realm, that means the pharmaceutical companies of Pfizer and Moderna, they are the sponsors. There was none from them on very important considerations, including the potential for contamination. This would include the RNA in quality. They're injecting RNA, so we expect the quality to be consistent and high. Uh, batch composition, protein identification, any of those things. There was no quality assurance um, about the fragmentation of RNA. RNA can be fragmented, what does that mean? You will learn. And Pfizer knowingly allowed contaminants a potential danger, and you will see why. Finally, the production process lacks fidelity and transparency. What is an injection? How do we know it's consistent from person to person lining up? How do they know that every single injection contains the exact same thing in each lot? We don't know that. So before I go on, I wanna get us all on the same page because there's gonna be some technical discussions that I'm going to bring up um, and I wanna make sure everybody is up here. Um, So I I apologize that this is technical. I'm going to try my best to um, explain this. The first thing I wanna talk about is the process of reading DNA. DNA, so this is a cell, DNA lives in the nucleus. This is the brains. This is the double-stranded DNA. All the red bits here are genes. These are the pieces that make our proteins. When you your body or your cells want to express a protein, the DNA is transcribed into RNA. At this point, there's many different processes to snip the RNA pieces, and uh, there's high, you know, to make it high quality. There's all these little checks and balances in your nucleus. It is then shuttled outside of the brains into the body, right? This is the cytoplasm of the cell. The mRNA is then translated into protein. The protein is then, um, so proteins are not single-stranded. They're globular. There's many domains, primary, secondary, tertiary domains, all that happens, folding, and then you have your protein.
0: Can I just summarize what you Please. said to see if, I, if, yes. if we've got that? So you basically explained the process of converting the DNA into mRNA, which happens in the nucleus, the brain of the cell, then the mRNA is converted into protein. And I know you use different words for that. Yes. But that's essentially, essentially. what's happening. And in, a very simplified the version, but yes, yes. Right.
1: Correct. All right. The next lesson, what is a plasmid? Um, a plasmid, you may have heard about a plasmid. What is a plasmid? What is a vector? It's a piece of DNA that can be used to transfer foreign genetic material into cells. So in molecular biology, if we want to express or we want to produce a protein, we can take the piece of DNA that we want. In this case, let's say it's a virus DNA we want to express, the spike protein. We use molecular scissors to cut that gene out of the DNA, and then we insert it into this plasmid or vector, the red part. And so you can see here, we can insert the gene of interest into the plasmid and use molecular glue. That's a simplification, but it's literally how it works. To glue those pieces together, then we have this plasmid that is a circular DNA um, and, we can in, and we can transfer that into bacteria. Plasmids live in bacteria, ubiquitously in, na- in nature. That's where they're from, bacteria and archaea, um, and they have, there's some very important uh, characteristics of plasmids. Number one, they can replicate on their own. Um, they often contain genes of interest that will help bacteria survive. So, if you've heard of MS, um, methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA, that's because they've attained antibiotic resistance from a plasmid and know those bacteria are resistant to those antibiotics. This is a very important characteristic interests are also very important. The double-stranded nature, so these are double-stranded, makes them stable. They do not degrade easily, and they replicate easy. Okay, so if, just to recap, you want to express a protein of interest. You cut it up, you put it in a plasmid, and you put the plasmid into bacteria, and you grow the bacteria up rapidly, and you get many, many copies of that plasmid. And that's how you're making the spike. That's right. So now, how did they make the spike injectables? So we've got our plasmid that has our piece of spike in it. They're transferred to E. coli here. So these are the little plasmids. They're transferred to the E. coli. They're then fermented or grown rapidly in bats. Hundreds of liters of bacteria growing in media that they like. They have all their nutrients. They're growing rapidly. With them, their plasmids are growing. Then we can harvest, this is from Pfizer, I should mention, this is the process detailed from Pfizer itself um, on how they made these injectables. So then they harvested the plasmids, You, you break apart the bacteria and you harvest the millions and trillions of plasmid. Then you need to cut up the plasmid because you need to get the DNA out, the red piece, the spike protein DNA. So they cut them, they linearize the plasmid, that's an important piece. They then use something called in vitro transcription. So if you recall when I said transcription is when you go from DNA to mRNA. So in vitro, meaning it's in a tube, this is not in a cell. They add the DNA that they've now taken out of the plasmid, they add a bunch of enzymes and things, and they are looking for this mRNA. This is what is going in the injections. They then purify. All of these pieces I should mention Um, By Pfizer's own lips, this is intense, rigorous testing to ensure there's no contamination at every one of these steps, that they've linearized all the plasmids, that they've turned all the DNA into mRNA, and if there's any that's left, under their words, they digest it, they get rid of it, they purify the mRNA so that all they have is that mRNA for spike protein that they then add to the lipids to make our delivery mechanism, the, the lipid nanoparticles with mRNA. Okay, can I summarize that?
0: I'll try. I regret skipping science class now. So the the bacteria or the plasmid is used for replicating the DNA? Correct. Okay. And once it's replicated, that is supposed to be filtered out. Correct. The plasmid or the bacteria is filtered out, leaving pure DNA. Then the DNA is converted into the mRNA using the process that you showed us earlier happening in the cell. That's right. Okay.
1: Okay, so now that we're all up to speed on that, what did they tell us? They being the sponsors, Pfizer and Moderna, what happened during injection? So they told us, okay, so here's the lipid nanoparticle. You can just blow this up, please. And they injected it into the deltoid, and it stays in the deltoid. That's what they told us. And at that point, in cells of the the muscle in your deltoid, this is a cellular rendition of what is happening. So I'm just gonna use my laser pointer here to show you. This is the lipid nanoparticle with mRNA. It is taken into the cell here. This is a cell. You recognize the brains. Here's the nucleus. The delivery of these mRNAs are turned into spike protein some of the spike protein is cleaved proteolytically cut up into tiny little bits some of it is taken to the outside of the cell the end result is spike and spike peptides or tiny bits of spike protein are exposed to the immune system of the person to uh, induce production of antibodies specific to those peptides or protein fragments thus inducing immunity this is what they told us would happen And based on data that has accumulated over the last few years, data that has been the result of FOIPS, or uh, court-ordered discovery of documents that were otherwise going to be hidden from the public for 75 years, what we can say is happening is number one, the injections do not stay in the deltoid. And this is based on data that was uh, under a Freedom of Information request by Dr. Byron Bridal. from a study that was conducted in Japan. The distribution of these LMPs go throughout the body. That is clear. They go into very sensitive organs, they do not stay in the deltoid, and not only do they go in throughout the body, they accumulate. What do I mean by that? That means that over, I'm going to just highlight here, some tissues that are sensitive. Liver, adrenal glands, your spleen, ovaries. Over time.
0: One moment. I just want to make sure we're still streaming and everyone can see, so we'll just pause for a moment. Okay.
1: Yeah. Over time in these sensitive organs that I've highlighted in red, the LMPs, so this is a distribution study where they radioactively labeled LMPs and over time were able to quantify where they went. And they show accumulation over time in these sensitive organs. Um, In addition, this study was based on a single-dose injection. So based on this study, Pfizer concluded that it stayed in the arm. It is not relevant to the true vaccine regime because there's only one injection. It is not biologically relevant. They didn't do a second injection and see if that was further accumulation. They just looked at a single injection and I'll tell you the number of rats in this study was three. For every time point, they looked at three rats. Now, one of the most concerning pieces from this data set is with respect to the ovaries. So Jessica Rose, Dr. Jessica Rose, took this data and plotted it. And you can see here that after 48 hours, it continues to go up. This is the LMPs over time. The x-axis here is time. The y-axis here is concentration. Over time, it accumulates in the ovaries of rats. Why did they stop at 48 hours? Why wouldn't they continue until it plateaued, like what would be scientifically rigorous um, and ethical? They stopped at 48 hours, so we aren't able to see what would happen. But if you were to take this and, can, and extrapolate based on the, uh, the degree of increase from the, from the data to 48 hours, this is what might be happening. But we don't know, so we have to just base this on our own inter- integrity. Again, why was this data only shown at 48 hours? Sample size of three, and importantly, this study was done in a non-GLP environment. The only study from the Pfizer dossiers that were not done in accordance with regulatory compliance, which is necessary for this type of approval process. They did it in a non-GLP, meaning none of the uh, processes were vetted. They weren't under strict operating procedures. That's a huge concern for someone who came out of that environment.
0: Is that a quality assurance issue?
1: Huge quality assurance issue, in my opinion, yes. So that was the first thing that we know is happening. The second, spike peptides share significant similarities to human proteins. Now what do I mean by that? Remember this picture here, how the spike protein in the the cells of the body is either cut up with tiny little scissors and taken to the outside of the cell, or full, full proteins are taken to the outside of the cell. When proteins are cleaved or cut up, the results are peptides. All proteins have peptides that make up the larger protein and they all share similar peptides when you cut them. This is a very simplified explanation, but the point I'm trying to make is, there is a huge concern for the development of autoimmune conditions when the body is instructed to create antibodies against a peptide, in this case spike, that shares very very strong similarity to human proteins. There is a huge concern for autoimmune development in that case.
0: And so the concern is that the spike uh, peptide will be attacking human protein because it's so similar?
1: The, the concern, very close, okay? <laughs> sir. The concern is the antibodies produced by the recipient, by the human, Mm -hmm. will be against peptides that are also in spike, but also in in the endogenous, also in the human. Okay. They share similarity to human proteins. Um, And 27 of those share similarity with proteins involved in fertility and development of the fetus. And so what, what, what might that mean? That would mean that the body will be producing, potentially, antibodies against proteins that are critical for human development. And that is a concern that should have been addressed, uh, in my opinion. So development of the fetus might be seen Correct. as a foreign body. Placental <laughs> development, deciduization, all of those things that uh, are critical components. And that could lead to miscarriages or... Um, it could lead to a lot of things that I, I, I wouldn't be able to speculate on um, but that should have been done that is part of the quality assurance that, that wouldn't have happened those are studies that needed to be done so I'll, re- I'll recap not only are the LMPs going to important tissues such as ovaries and we're seeing data in real time right now that they also cross the placenta that's a big concern. But then the proteins that are being expressed share significant similarity with human proteins. Is it possible the manufacturer may not have known that? In my opinion, there is no way that they wouldn't have known that. This is part of rigorous primary research that would have happened in a room full of very, very well paid scientists over many time, over many months. Um, Anybody in first-year biology can put in the sequence of the spike protein uh, and find out what similarities peptides would share. Thank you. What else do we know? We now know that unlike what Pfizer and Moderna have said, the spike protein and the mRNA enter the nucleus or the brains of our cells. There was assurances that this wouldn't happen uh, but recent reports show the nuclear presence, so again, where the DNA and our cells live, that spike protein and spike mRNA localize to the nucleus. And my question is why is this research being done three years after the rollout of these injectables? And this is the paper. So, one of the conclusions from this paper. And if you recall, one of the uh, pathological characteristics of spike protein is the presence of the furin cleavage site. It's one of the things that make it so pathogenic to humans. It is also a nuclear localization site, meaning that that particular sequence facilitates, helps the mRNA go to the nucleus. And that was a surprise to these researchers that this publication was from January of 2023.
0: That's not supposed to happen. Not what they told us would happen, no. Yeah, okay. All right. So so the spike protein that's contained in the injection is landing in the nucleus, which is the brains of the
1: cell. That's correct. And I'll just bring up this, which was on the CDC website. You can go back to the Way Back When machine and find this yourself. Of course, this has been taken down. One of the things that they say is that they do, these injections do not impact or interact with our DNA. And that is no longer what they claim. And this is a a paper showing that. And I want you to to impress on you what this means is that the spike protein and mRNA go to the brains. This is the brains right where our DNA lives. And this is showing you a picture of that data. What you're seeing here are cells under fluorescence microscopy. The blue staining is the nuclei. The green staining is the protein, and the spike, spike protein, and the red staining is a spike mRNA. And you can clearly see, um, and this has been replicated, uh, clear association with the nuclear envelope, so what wraps our DNA in the nucleus, as well as inside the nucleus of the cell. I'll move on. What else do we know? The spike mRNA is reverse transcribed in human cells. And I will explain what that means. This is happening. So this paper here was published last year. And it was conducted in liver cells. So this is not in humans. This is in vitro. And it shows that there's... Intracellular reverse transcription of the COVID injectable mRNA vaccine in vitro in a human cell cell line. And it, this is happening is, as sorry. quickly as six hours. Is in vitro in a Petri dish? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, this is, this is not happening in a human. But this type of information is critical. And these are the, the original experiments that needed to happen. Because if you see some kind of trend like this, that begs more questions, that's a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Wait, it's, inter- it's, it's reverse transcribing. And in addition to that, so reverse transcription for everybody who is listening, is when mRNA is turned into DNA, we are going the other direction now. And this is facilitated by very important enzymes called retrotransposons, um, retrotransposases. And the one that in humans that they found to be associated with this is something called line one. This particular enzyme is really important, and you'll notice a trend, to embryogenesis and development of the fetus, development of people, okay? And it is being exasperated. It is going up in expression after injection, after exposure to uh, these Pfizer products.
0: So just, I think I'm going to try to simplify that. So (laughs) does this mean that the spike mRNA that we said is landing in the cell is then being converted to DNA, back to DNA? This is saying that is, that is potentially happening. Yeah, what's happening in that Petri exactly. dish, which would be good quality assurance, I would think, to do that sort of research when you're developing the product. Correct.
1: Yeah. Furthermore, in another study, they found that that enzyme, line one, mediates, so it facilitates, reverse transcription of the SARS-CoV-2 virus into the genome. This is in cells of humans. This is in a Petri dish. These are cells, human cells. This paper is where this could be found. So the virus is being turned into DNA and going into the, the, DNA, the genome of the people's cells. I, I, sorry, that sounded quite... So, not only is it being reverse transcribed into DNA, but with the virus, it's being reverse transcribed and then inserted into the genome. So, I just want to quickly go back to this picture because I don't want to lose people. This is, this is very important that everybody understands. Reverse transcription is when you go from the RNA back to the nucleus. Line 1 is the enzyme that is very... Um, Uh, that facilitates this. There's others, but this is the main one. Um, And so the concern is, not only is it going to the nucleus as we've shown, but the potential for it to be reverse transcribed into DNA and then furthermore integrated into the genome is there. This is a concern. What else do we know? The products do not contain what we were told they contain. What you are seeing here is from a dossier. This is Pfizer's data showing the RNA integrity uh, of what was being produced commercially. There was some documents that were uh, leaked, so to speak, after the uh, European Medical Association met with Pfizer They had major objections because they found inconsistencies in the quality of RNA that was being produced for their clinical studies versus the quality of RNA that was being commercially produced and therefore used for widespread inoculations. There was inconsistencies. And what does that mean? That means that the length of the RNA, the integrity of those messengers that were being injected varied. It was inconsistent. It varied from batch to batch. And that is unacceptable quality control or quality assurance when you're considering what those things actually do and this picture shows that so what we should see here is just a single very strong peak this is showing the volume or the the quantity of rna and it should be a beautiful peak there shouldn't be any other peaks there shouldn't be shoulders there shouldn't be anything like that so the Um, short
0: the shorter peak is the shorter is an impurity yeah yeah and that's and that's a uh a, a uh, truncated piece, like that part correct. of the message is missing, as you said. Yeah. That's
1: correct. So the percent RNA integrity is not even close to 100 percent, and it was closer to 55 percent in some commercial batches. So if, if this is true, we do not know what is being made in the cells after they have been injected, and the physiological impacts of this is unknown. There is no way to predict and every single vial has a different concentration of of intact of RNA that's in uh, complete RNA in addition to that so i mentioned this was leaked from the ema this was raised as a major objection and the the uh, level that was set originally was 70% which is still interesting that 30% impurity is somehow acceptable. The original level was set at 70% because Pfizer couldn't meet that. Instead of of, of increasing their quality assurance, they just reduced the acceptable background to 55%. So they are okay with 45% of the injections containing who knows what. And I'll quote from the objection. The possibility of translated proteins other than intended spike protein resulted from truncated and or modified mRNA species should be addressed. And I mentioned this, 55% intact RNA is the new acceptable limit. So that's a concern. Truncated mRNA species is known, they are known to be... um, be potentially pathogenic. They could have unknown physiological impacts. Our cells have checks and balances to make sure that that message from the DNA to the RNA to the protein is high, has high fidelity, is translated. There's no mistakes. There's no mutations. If this truncated mRNA uh, is then allowed to reproduce in our cells... Um, what is the protein impact of that? What impact does that have on the cell? Are there misfolded proteins? Misfolded proteins are a huge concern. And that's what this contain. This is talking about. If the RNA is not intact, what is the protein that's being produced? And that was the objection raised to Pfizer. And Pfizer uh, submitted some very interesting digitally um, sort of mastered um, proof that nothing nefarious is going on, or the proteins are what they say they are, um, and, and, and that was just unacceptable because it was digital uh, protein verification. They didn't give actual data to show what those proteins are. There's never been sequencing done on the proteins. There's never been crystallography done on the proteins or any of that. Uh, confirmatory steps necessary to show people, to show the public, and assure them that those truncated mRNAs are not going to be a problem.
0: So the the truncated RNAs, then, they have a partial message. So that's confusing the body or the body is... is, We don't know what the body is going to pick up from that in terms of messaging. Well, the message could be read.
1: But as I've... So recall, the proteins are translated, and then there's all this protein modification and they're globular and all these domains. If it's a partial message, that protein could just be partially... Who knows what it interacts with? There's the okay. potential for, for uh, interactions that we don't know about is very, very high. Okay. And so it's, it's a matter of waiting
0: to see how that evolves in the body. Yeah. Yes.
1: Finally, there has been data in the last month that has been uh, rigorously, in my opinion, confirmed to show the injections contain double-stranded DNA contamination from the plasmids so if you recall in the process map and i will bring it up again the plasmids were linearized the dna is then translated or is transcribed into mrna mrna into the injections that entire process appears to be contaminated The researchers, uh, Dr. Kevin McKernan et al. and his team, have taken it upon themselves to sequence what is in the vials. Because we were never given sequencing data. It continues to be hidden from the public. So they did it using Illumina sequencing. They did RNA-seq, DNA-seq, nanopore sequencing. They have exhaustively repeated the data because the concern is very real. So they wanted to make sure it was what it is. And they found, without a shadow of a doubt, double-stranded DNA contamination in the injections. They had two vials of Moderna. They had two vials of Pfizer. Contamination was present in all of the vials in various amounts. In addition, they found contamination of plasmids that contained the antibiotic-resistant gene from the original cloning experiments. Neomyosin and canomyosin, the sequences are there for those particular resistant genes. And regulatory authorities have said there is an acceptable limit of contamination by double-stranded DNA. One molecule out of of DNA for every 3,000 molecules of RNA. Um, What they found is orders of magnitude higher than that, number one. Number two, they found intact plasmids, and I'll show you what that means. If there's no questions to that slide, I'll move on. No. So, this is the RNA integrity plots from those vials showing the shoulders here. Again, what are those? We're not sure. The, the shoulders are, is that the shortened? Those uh, are truncated and, yeah. in some cases, elongated versions of mRNA. Okay. So, I just want to recall plasmids, what are we talking about? They're circular DNA, they are highly transmissible and replication competent, meaning they can replicate all on their very own. They are used in molecular biology to produce proteins of interest. In this case, it's spike protein. They are often associated with E. coli. That was the original bacteria that they were using to reproduce these plasmids. They contain their own promoter. They contain the interest. So here's the the promoter. This is is ensuring that that it is replicated. So it promotes the gene of interest. This is where the spike would be. A bunch of other things they need to be able to select that those bacteria containing those plasmids are actually containing what they think and they do that using antibiotic resistance so if you can if you put this plasmid in a bacteria you know it contains it because the bacteria will survive in the presence of that antibiotic and in this case it's neomycin and kanamycin. so remember this diagram these are the potential Areas of contamination that that I have circled here in red. According to Pfizer, the linearization of the plasmids occurred earlier in the manufacturing process, and then after this step, there is rigorous testing to demonstrate they are linear. That is not there is circular plasmids present in these DNA in these vials. And importantly, this step is considered by regulatory authorities to be a critical quality assessment meaning this is a critical point to ensure there is no contamination. So, I emphasize that because of the importance of what we're discussing here.
0: It's it, critical. And, oh, and, I'd, and I'd like to summarize that because it is an important point. So the bacteria and the plasma that was used to replicate the DNA, we talked about that process earlier, um, which is supposed to be filtered out, was not filtered out in these samples that the scientists um, examined from Pfizer and Moderna. There's contamination. And that's the contamination
1: you're speaking of. So
0: it's that bacterium plasmid that is in the injection, which is not supposed to be there. Correct. Okay.
1: Here's some maps. The next two slides, the only thing I want to impress upon you is that not only are there plasmids present in the vials, but the plasmids are different. There's different... Uh, sequences some have really long spikes somehow different uh, there's just different contamination it's not like there's a consistent plasmid in every it's not like there's consistent sequences of the double-stranded DNA it varies so that, would that be was from in Pfizer. that's yep. correct Pfizer and moderna same thing so to confirm that the plasmids were what they saw on the sequencing data they took the vials and they digested all of the RNA out of it so that all they would have left is double-stranded DNA if it was present, meaning plasmids, potentially. They then exposed that double-stranded DNA to E. coli in a flask of medium. E. coli are really good at taking up plasmids, so if there's plasmids in what they just put in there, they will take it up. They then took that bacterial medium, plated it on, on, on plates, this agar here, that contains antibiotics. If they were to find bacterial growth on these plates, that would demonstrate there were plasmids that were replication-competent in those vials, number one, number two, that contained antibiotic-resistant genes. And they found that in both Moderna and Pfizer, and you can see that here with colonies of bacteria growing on these plates. And how is that important that it's in there. Maybe you're going to get to that, but... What that confirms is that the, not only were they finding plasmids, they were circular, they were replication-competent, and they were able to grow in an antibiotic resist, an antibiotic media. Now, if you imagine that those injections are going into the human body, and we know that they go all over the body, including the GI tract, and those plasmids are then, um, GI tract being your colon and everything, where you have tons of bacteria growing, that's your microbiome, and those plasmids are replication-competent, it follows they would get out, they could get out and they could get into the bacteria of the human, thus in transforming their microbiome with potential antibiotic resistant genes. That is a huge concern Mm -hmm. that is unacceptable quality control. Mm -hmm. These sequencing results of the contents of injectables found multiple versions of expression plasmids in varying degrees between vials these are viable there is inconsistent contamination to which people were not given informed consent I realize we are getting up there in time so I will try to go a bit faster if that's required
0: no it's pretty fascinating so <laughs> Look, we <have> time. okay <laughs> keep going yeah we do okay. I am yes
1: so I would just like to summarize this independent product analysis. And I would also like to say that it is unacceptable that this product analysis landed on the shoulders of independent uh, citizen scientists and that this wasn't done by the sponsors. Because we wouldn't have known this was the case if Kevin McKernan and his team didn't sequence this. Mm-hmm. And I will also know based on Kevin McKernan and his team that this they're trying to reproduce that with the original vaccine. Uh, Injectables. This is for the bivalent boosters that they are pushing on our children right now. Okay. That is what we are talking about. So the contamination that, that they've yes. identified
0: is in the boosters? This is in the yeah. bivalent
1: boosters that is currently being yeah. um, pushed on,
0: on the public. And they haven't examined the original eject- injections yet no, to say whether it's present. They
1: they have um, high suspicions based on earlier data that they will find the same thing.
0: Okay. And, and I, I also meant to ask you whether this might. Um, contribute to the wide variety of adverse events we're having if there's so many different contaminants in the different vials, different levels of contamination? Unequivocally. Yeah.
1: So I just want to summarize this independent product analysis. They found double-stranded DNA contamination levels at up to or maybe more than 100-fold higher than acceptable limits. It's important to note, this has been under, uh, for the last month, rigorous community um, discussion, scientific discourse, trying to reproduce data, trying to get at some very important questions in a way that is transparent to the public. Anybody can go and follow this stuff. It's They're trying to get it out on Twitter spaces, they're getting it out in their Substacks. Anybody can go wh- follow this. And I would have to say thank you very much to that team for doing this work. Um, they have estimated up to 35%, again, being confirmed, of the nucleic acid in each vaccine as being expression vector. And most of this DNA is expression plasmid DNA. Again, the plasmid being what was in, initially carrying out um, the, uh, the, reprodu- the reproduction of, of the spike protein. Interestingly, and very important, whenever you have present of, presence of contamination like this, How can you assure the public that there isn't contamination of bacterial, uh, other bacterial type associated things like E. coli endotoxins? So when you're growing up plasmids in E. coli and you get evidence of plasmid contamination, then you must assume through logic that there might be E. coli contamination. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So E. coli contains endotoxins Endotoxins can cause anaphylaxis, uh, TSS, toxic shock syndrome, um, among other things. So it's sort of like a canary, right, Mm -hmm. to see the plasmid present. Um, Again, we don't know, but that's a concern. Mm -hmm. The plasmids carry antibiotic resistance. Again, the potential to transfer that to humans is a concern. And while the bacteria are unlikely to express the spike protein... They can replicate the plasmid. So the bacteria in our guts, if they get this plasmid, there is no there's absolute certainty that they can replicate it. Okay. And and, and does that mean that the
0: bo- it's questionable whether the body will react properly to antibiotics if they need antibiotics for some condition? That would be my concern. Yeah. Because the body would yes. it would be resistant to it, to the antibiotic. Okay.
1: So the next really important question that follows, and I'm taking you through this in a way that I've been following it because it's, it's step after step. So the next question that I have, is this contaminating DNA interacting with our DNA? In molecular biology, it is sort of a known. It's, 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 a, it's a known phenomenon. That when you have high amounts of double stranded DNA present, it can enter the genome. And it doesn't need those special line one transposable uh, transposases to help you. It can just do it on its own. And the genome is? The DNA. Yep. Yeah. And this happens during cellular division. Um, when your cells are splitting in meiosis and mitosis, is when cells split into other cells they grow it's cellular division okay this is known to happen during that process what are cell what are tissues in the human body that are highly divisive that that are dividing all the time liver skin your intestinal tract uh, sperm cells egg cells bone marrow lymphocytes the developing fetus all of these tissues are under high rates of mitosis And this is the paper uh, showing transvected plasma DNA is incorporated into the nucleus during this process. So we know that there's publications showing this. This is a known thing in molecular biology that the double-stranded DNA can integrate into the genome during these dividing cell processes. So... In this instance, where we have potentially billions and trillions of double-stranded DNAs in the injectables that is contaminating, they are now going throughout the body, we know that. They're accumulating in certain very sensitive areas, we know that, and those sensitive areas are subject to high rates of mitosis. And now we're showing that high levels of double-stranded DNA are present in those injections in highly-dividing tissues the logic follows there's a potential for integration into the genome. Moreover, we know that the furin cleavage site acts as a nuclear localization site, getting the DNA into the nucleus of the cells. In addition, In those plasmids that they've sequenced, they found the sequence and they know that there's a special promoter called the SV40 promoter. And that's a promoter that is used in molecular biology to replicate plasmids because it works so well. It's like a supercharger replication, okay? It facilitates nuclear entry as well, in addition to being an oncogene. Kevin and his team found evidence of the 72 base pair Insertion in this promoter, that, as you can see here, has a striking effect on gene expression. So this promoter turbocharges the plasmid replication. And here is the sequence. And and I apologize; you can't see the the, well. Maybe you don't want to see the letters. But basically, what this is showing in one plasmid, you see the evidence of of the insertion of the 72 base pairs and the other one you don't. So it's just inconsistent. Some plasmids mm-hmm. have it, some plasmids don't. The, SC, the,
0: the SV40. SV40 is not present all the
1: time. No, and, and no the promoter is, Oh, the okay. but this supercharged insertion isn't. I see, so okay. So what is the SV40? It's a simian virus, that's what it comes from. It's a highly competent promoter sequence used for efficient replication. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nuclear entry of plasma DNA requires this promoter to get in. I, is it unordinary that that would be
0: used in this process? Or is no, that, it is not. It's, no. it's
1: a really exceptional way way back early before the it's in, in the injection. That's an acceptable way. That's an acceptable way to replicate fi- uh, plasmids. We're not supposed to be injected with that, though.
0: Yes, okay. That's so supposed to be gone. That's for a entirely different science, yes. not for, the, for use in the human body. That's correct. Yeah. So I want
1: to just bring this all together when I'm talking about the abhorrent abysmal quality control and quality assurance that in my opinion has happened with these injections it has resulted in every injection being a new event when you go to the grocery store you expect your milk to all be the same when you take a Tylenol you expect it to be 400 milligrams not sometimes 900 and not sometimes 300 and not sometimes containing lead it's quality assurance and control. That is what makes the world go round in consumerism and commercial products. And that is supposed to be an accepted sort of standard and fundamental tenet for pharmaceutical drugs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In this case, this is not, in my opinion, the case. Okay. Every injection is a new event. You may or may not have spike of various lengths, uh, mRNA of various lengths, double-stranded DNA of various lengths, You have the SB40 promoter, sometimes it contains the turbo, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you contain the the resistant genes for antibiotics. Who knows if there's endotoxins in there? Who knows where it's going in your body? That's a really important point. And I wanted to recall, because yesterday I've been watching this entire testimony. Yesterday, uh, I apologize, I forget the name, but the nurse who was talking about aspirating and how they don't aspirate anymore. And how every time someone is injected with one of these products, it either could get into the blood, maybe it doesn't, maybe it stays in the deltoid a little bit. Who knows? Because it's not the same for every person. And this, on top of it, the confounding impacts of these contaminants makes it so concerning for me.
0: So it sounds as though the process is well outside any kind of reasonably accepted standard absolutely yeah and so and I know you can't speak to whether the manufacturer wouldn't would have known this but ought they have known this 100% the onus is on them to know
1: this the lack of sufficient quality control and quality assurance by manufacturers that every injection is consistent lacking contamination and that the necessary checks and balances are undertaken to ensure There is no potential negative impacts on people was not done. The injectables are not a conventional vaccine. They are a gene therapy drug built on brand new technology that lacked the assurances from quality control to ensure that it was consistent and lacked contamination. It enters the nucleus, it doesn't even provide immunity, and uh, it persists in the body for months. Why does this matter to us? That's why. In conclusion, Things are not what they seem. The origin of the sars cov 2 virus, we don't know. The true numbers of actual infections. It is my personal opinion. Based on my professional experience, this has been a case-demic. Mandates are justified by trusting the experts. They've never been supported by citations or references and were po- politically incentivized. Early treatment was treated as pseudoscience, despite clear benefit, how many died unnecessarily. And finally, mRNA products are an abject failure. They are not safe, they are not necessary, and they do not contain what we think they do.
0: Thank you, um, Dr. Braden. Uh, This is fascinating data and evidence. I really appreciate you putting this uh, slideshow together. I want to take a moment because I I think the audience and the uh, people watching live stream should know a little bit about your personal story.
1: So, I think I've demonstrated fairly well that I've had concerns uh, about multiple facets of the of the COVID crisis. Um, I live in PEI, where every Thursday we were told by Dr. Heather Morrison, the, chief, uh, the public health officer, that our children were gonna die if we didn't vaccinate them. We were told that there was a huge risk to their health um, we were told a lot of things, and for quite some time, I, I as professional, did not speak out publicly um, because we we saw what would happen to you if you did. Um, after they started rolling out vaccines injections for the children, I decided that I had a moral obligation and a professional obligation to. Su- to to stand up and ask questions publicly. Uh So uh, in November of of 2020, 2021, uh, the International Day of the Child, I attended a rally in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and expressed my concerns. Of course, back then we didn't know about all of what I just spoke about, but my concerns were with respect to the silencing of early treatments, um, to the fact that children were not at risk uh, and all of those things. And in December of 2021, um, I was uh, fired. I was terminated from my position, and effectively canceled from my career. First, for this,
0: you sacrificed a lot
1: to speak of on behalf of others. And, and what was your position? Um, So I was adjunct faculty in the Department of Animal Medicine at the University of Prince of Rhode Island. And um, I was also, as I mentioned, program lead and senior um, senior scientist in molecular immunology and biotech uh, for the private company that I worked for. And um, at no point did I ever, during me speaking out publicly, did I ever mention my employer's name. I spoke as a private citizen with the education to back up the conclusions that I made. Um, and I never at once indicated who I worked for or that I was there on their behalf. Um, I was never given any warning. Uh, I arrived to work on a Monday morning. My supervisor was there who flew in from the US. Um, they'd never allowed me to speak to defend my deposition. Um, they they escorted me out of the building. I was never given any severance or any of the, any of the like. They fired me for Uh, degrading COVID to be a bad flu, for calling ivermectin a potential early early treatment, um, and for uh, questioning the safe and effective nature of mRNA injections. Thank you, Dr. Braden. At this time...